hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Stretched out in front of you are the people. Behind you, countless battles, both the bloody and the figurative. From the balcony where you stand, you see families, soldiers, and musicians. You stand beside Robert Livingston, Chancellor of New York. You shift your focus to him as he begins to state the oath you are to repeat. You are about to become President of the United States, the very first one. And what will this mean exactly? The job description is, well, it's vague. You overheard chatter at the Constitutional Convention. If anyone can do it, Washington can. No pressure. 22 senators, 59 representatives, your new Congress. Those are the power players you'll have to manage, but the people you'll answer to are spread out before you your fellow citizens in a new republic. Your mind races. How is this presidential role going to pan out, together with Congress and the judiciary? How will you pay off the crushing war debt you've inherited? How will you deal with England, negotiate with other foreign powers, with the Cherokee Nation? So many questions. So much responsibility at every turn, the chance to get it wrong. But not today, you think. Today, all you have to do is repeat after Mr. Livingston. And so, you utter the first words of the rest of your life, and of everyone destined to hold the job after you. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. And guess what? It's election time! Finally! So what better job to cover than President of the American Republic? I was thrilled to get the chance to discuss this one-of-a-kind gig with Kenny Ryan a journalist and fellow podcaster whose own show examines the lives and work of each of the former U.S. presidents. Before we dive into today's episode, I've got a public service announcement. If you can vote and you haven't done so yet, please turn me off right now and go. Go vote. I don't know that there's ever been so much on the line. So with that, Let's dive into the very best civics lesson I've ever had. Seriously. Remember Schoolhouse Rock? Well, Kenny Rock civics 10 times harder. Kenny is a national award-winning journalist who now works as a marketing strategy consultant in Seattle, Washington. 
He's the producer and host of his own podcast, The Abridged Presidential Histories, a monthly podcast that looks at the triumphs, scandals, and successes of each American president in chronological order, each in 60 minutes or less. That's the abridged bit. You can find Kenny with Abridged Presidential Histories at aph.buzzsprout.com. Kenny, thanks for taking time from your own podcast to come and hang out in ours. It's a pleasure to join you, Karen. Yeah, well, it, it's a great topic today, a really timely topic, presidents in the American Republic. And, you know, it's on a lot of people's minds, not just in the United States, but around the world. It certainly is. My friends around the world are constantly asking me, Kenny, what's going on over there? And I, I do my best to explain it in a way that makes sense. <laughs> well, you're going to help me too, I'm sure, because um, I have to say that political history is not my strongest point. I'm an anthropologist. It's all about uh, bottom-up history, where, where I come from academically. So <laughs> I'm really excited to kind of remember or learn for the first time uh, what what the American presidency really um, was all about, what it was conceived to be, and how it's been evolving and how we are where we are today. So to that end, it would be terrific if you could give our listeners a quick 101 uh, for the American presidency. You know, what are we looking at for post-revolutionary war America um, and really the United States place in the world at this time that gave rise to the presidency. Absolutely. And that's a great place to start. Uh, when the United States came out of the Revolutionary War, it, they're a brand new country and everybody's trying to figure out everything. You know, what's our government going to be? How are we going to pay off our war debt? Does this mean we have to pay taxes again? You know, <laughs> all these big questions. And, and at the top of it was, you know, the first one, what's our government look like? They start with this experiment called the Articles of Confederation, where all they have is a single House of Congress, but it quickly fails. So after about eight years, they go back to the drawing table. They lock themselves in a room in a, in a convention in Philadelphia, and they're supposed to just be making tweaks to the articles. Instead, they emerge with this brand new government with this thing called the presidency involved. And from that point forward, everyone's trying to figure out what exactly is the presidency? How does it play with Congress? How does it fit? with the judiciary, and you know, what are we doing here? Yeah, it's like kind of making up as they go, probably in some respects, right? When you, you try one thing and you feel like, oh, no, this isn't quite right. It would be good to start with the president's job description as it was originally conceived. Absolutely. So the, the president's job description in the Constitution is remarkably brief. You, you got you know, a list of things there. They're the commander in chief. So they're in charge of the army at a time of war. But when George Washington becomes president, his army is going to be like 840 guys, 840 guys. That's his army. So it's, that's not a big part of it yet. The president can issue pardons. The president can make treaties, but they need two thirds of the Senate to approve all the treaties. They can nominate judges, but they need the Senate to consent on that too. So even these duties, really, they're, they're kind of bound to the Senate. They have to issue states of the union to Congress, support and how things are going. Uh, they can receive foreign diplomats. They have to make sure laws are executed and they have the veto power. When I look at everything that's there and I look at what the founding fathers were doing, I really think the initial view of the presidency is he was less the commander in chief and really more the 
project manager in chief. You know, this is someone, yeah. everybody was terrified of royalty. Nobody wanted another king. They wanted someone who Congress will tell, you know, come up with laws and the president will execute them, hence executive office. And that's kind of where they started. And it really quickly grew and changed from there. Could you just quickly lay out you know, the new nation's place in the world at the time. I mean, we know they had just achieved uh, independence from, from England, oh, but yes. what, you know, what, did that, what did that mean for this new nation? And how did the, you know, the conception of a president play into that? It's a very precarious place at the start. There's not much margin for error. The United States is surrounded by European powers. Britain is to the north. And at this point, everyone's still freaked out about Britain. Uh, in fact, Britain, they still occupying forts in the Midwest, in the territory beyond the Appalachian Mountains. Like, sure, we won the war, but they're hanging out over there like kind of the French in Monty Python. You know, like, of, of course we have a, a fort over <laughs> here. Go on. You got the <laughs> and, nation, but we keep the fort. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's going to be a big point of contention Washington's dealing with as president. Uh, West and South, you have Spain. Uh, which, you know, you might think of, I thought we bought Louisiana from France. France doesn't own that territory yet. They'll win that in the European war. Right now we have Spain to the West and Spain and Florida. So we're totally surrounded. Uh, and very much to Europe, like the Europe's the big show right now. You know, they're all uh, occupied with themselves, fighting wars with each other, uh, negotiating with each other. The United States is like a fly on the window to them. Some people in Europe aren't even where we exist. Uh, for example, in 1797, uh, John Quincy Adams, a future president, at that point a diplomat, he's going to be sent to Berlin to be a U.S. representative there. And when he arrives at the city gates, the city guards are like, the United States, that sounds made up. No, no you can't. <laughs> really? Yeah, you yeah. They didn't even believe it. <laughs> Come back. You better than that. <laughs> yeah. So that's how, like, on the periphery the United States was. And if Europe was thinking about us at all, it was, you know, how can we manipulate the Americans? How can the Americans do something for us? And uh, in the middle of George Washington's presidency, Britain and France are going to start a series of wars that last like 20 years. And all they're going to care about is how do we play the United States off against the other? And that's going to be a major issue for Washington and the early presidents. Let's, let's dive right in and talk about the day in the life of an early president. And we might as well start with number one, George Washington. So what's the first day on the job like for him? So for George Washington, you know, first off, he, he strolls into the Capitol in New York City, you know, because ah. New York City was the Capitol <laughs> back then. Of course. Uh, of course it was, you know, it's something that even my friends from New York, when I tell them that somehow they didn't know. Um, but it starts off in, in, in New York City, the Capitol will move a few times, it won't end up at DC till like 1800. But so that's the first thing he does, he goes up to New York City. And then he has to figure out everything, you know, like, does the president get a cabinet? That's not in the Constitution, you know, who's advising this guy? What does his relationship with Congress look like exactly? Even questions about how should people address him? Uh, in the Senate, in the early days, they have this big debate and the Senate's like, maybe whenever people talk to the president, they should call him his highness, the president Ooh. of the United States of America and protector of their liberties. And then that's the, a mouthful. <laughs> I know it's a mouthful. And then the house. Well, and it includes your highness, which would seem to be a little verboten. But, but that, and that's like part of this 
people want the presidency to be respected. And that's where this idea of, I mean, we have to call him his highness. Otherwise the Europeans will look down on him, you know, cause they're all highnesses. Yeah. Not a highness. No one's going to respect him, but Washington thought it was too much. And so he, he accepted an else suggestion, just president of the United States. Like that's cool. And he was a humble fellow, wasn't he? From, from what I've heard. I mean, we all know about the cherry tree and who knows if all of that is true, but right. He had to really be convinced to take this job. He did. I mean, Washington comes out of the Revolutionary War as the man that everybody is looking to. He's pretty much the guy that everybody knows. We want him to lead us. He won this war for us. We want to put him in charge. And that actually gives him the space to be humble. You know, he knows he's the one that everybody wants in charge. So he can, you know, be a little coquettish about it. He can be a little coy. And he is also... So the early American, the founding father generation, they were obsessed with Rome. They loved Roman history and they're very aware of Roman history. And in Roman history, there's a legend of a man named Cincinnatus. And Cincinnatus was a, a Roman senator who is temporarily made dictator. At that point, dictator is, you know, there's an emergency, we're putting you in charge. And he retired from dictator to go back and be a farmer. And then they would call him up and he would leave his farm and be dictator. Washington wanted to be viewed as Cincinnatus, a guy who is reluctantly called from his farm to lead and then lets go of ultimate power and retires again. So that's very much the image he's trying to cultivate for himself. That's why he steps down after the Revolutionary War and he takes a back seat for a while. And that's why when he gives his inaugural address, Washington's inaugural address is basically a long reason list of, oh gosh, guys, like, I'm not sure I'm the right guy. I'll do my best. I mean, you trusted me, but <laughs> man, this is going to be tough. Gosh, shucks. Wow. We haven't heard an inaugural speech like that ever since, have we? <laughs> well, <laughs> at least not since they've, that we've got modern media to preserve it. Who knows? I suppose it's possible. Right. Wow. Okay. And so Let's then, if we could, kind of jump to what a typical day in office would have been for one of these early Republican presidents, Republic with a small r. <laughs> Absolutely. So the early days of the presidency, you, you wake up and you're probably going to read your newspaper, you know. That's where one of the places you're going to get your news. For Washington, he would also go out on a two-hour morning ride. He'd go on a one-hour evening walk, you know, get out into the city a bit lots and lots of reading and writing. Um, When Washington eventually does establish a cabinet, he's going to keep very much in touch with them by writing letters to them, having reports sent back to him. He's going to encourage debate between them, and he'll very much be the decider in the middle. In the evenings, frequent dinners with legislators you have to work with and other um, public officials that you want relationships with. And also for every presidency, so so many office seekers, so many people showing up at your door and being like, hey, I have a cousin. I think you should make them the port commissioner of the city. <laughs> a whole lot of that, which no president has ever enjoyed. Um, so, so those are some of the, the early routines. One thing from those early years that you don't have anymore that's interesting is there's a lot more public access to the president. Um, for example, George Washington, once a week, he'd have a 30-minute levy where uh, strangers could come in chat with him briefly, bow, and then leave. Uh, Other early presidents, like Thomas Jefferson, they might open the whole White House, you know, and and let people come in and uh, have a little party and an informal gathering. Uh, One funny thing is is an early tradition of some of these early presidents, after they were elected, 
dairy farmers really like to give them giant wheels of cheese, like huge. I love cheese. I, I would become the president of the early American Republic to get giant wheels of cheese delivered to me. This is why people ran. Absolutely. And <laughs> <laughs> I got a low bar, but yeah. And so they would have like giant cheese parties, help us eat all this cheese, you know? So there was a lot more access. That's so funny. <laughs> I love that image. Yes. It's a little more casual than what we think of today. Right. Huh. Right. And, you know, at what point did this new office of the American president begin entertaining visiting dignitaries? You know, you mentioned absolutely right at the off the bat that in Berlin they were sort of laughed at when they arrived. Like, what is that place? You know, that that's not a real country. So when when did when did the traction kind of develop so that that daily routine also included more external meetings? That was absolutely there at the start, too. Uh, one of those roles is to receive foreign dignitaries. That's one of the few things that the Constitution actually says the president's supposed to do. And while not everybody's immediately sending, you know, their dignitaries to Washington, you certainly have uh, France there right off the bat. England shows up very quickly. Quite a few of the other power, European powers, too. And so he will entertain these guys. Um, and, and this will actually lead to quite a bit of controversy because these dignitaries they're not used to going to democratic countries. You know, they're used to going to kingdoms where it's like, all right, I just got to convince the guy in charge and he'll do it. France sends over a diplomat, a guy named Citizen Genet. And Citizen Genet, he tries to convince Washington, you should help us in our war against England. And Washington's like, no, nah, I want to stay out of it. And Citizen Genet, his response is, well, you're a republic, so I'm just going to start appealing to the people. And I'm going to get all of them to put such pressure on you that it forces you to change your mind. And he actually starts going out and whipping the people up against Washington. You have angry mobs outside Washington's residency. Well, trying- look, does that sound like the French Revolution? <laughs> look where he's exactly. coming from at the time. That's the great. I love it. It crazy. works in France. You could do it here. <laughs> and the, the crazy thing about this, though, is, you know, the French Revolution is constantly changing governments. Very quickly, they get a new government that decides they don't like Citizen Genet. And he's summoned back to Paris, where he'll probably be executed. So Washington, after getting all this, you know, uh, crap from this guy, get, getting all this uh, rough treatment from Citizen Genet, he lets him stay in the United States. And Citizen Genet, after being such a thorn on Washington's side, lives out his years in peace in the United States because well, Washington- so is he like one of the first political refugees? That's actually not a bad way of thinking about him. Yeah. Uh, the United States sheltered quite a few refugees from the French Revolution. What What is our early president most worried about, do you think, as a leader and, you know, also just as a, a regular citizen of the Republic? Setting the country up right for strength. I mean, they're very aware we are the only democracy. They're very aware all of Europe would love for us to fail. You know, they also have more pressing needs. Um, in addition to these international affairs, they have $54 million in war debt that they got to pay. So this is one of the big things he's stressing out about. You need to set up trade treaties with Europe. You know, he's trying, I mentioned the, the British are still in those forts in the Midwest. He's trying to get them out, you know, all these things, balancing that and also balancing national politics. Uh, Washington, he's beloved is why he'll immediately be made president, but that's not going to last his whole presidency. Washington is not some guy who the whole time he's president, everybody loves him. Pretty quickly, people start complaining about him. He's acting too uh, too much like a king, you know, that he's acting too 
monarchical, you know, uh, or he's supporting policies that we think is taking the country the wrong way. Uh, one of the famous feuds that happens under his watch is his treasury secretary, Alexander Hamilton, his secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson. They basically form opposition parties fighting each other in his cabinet over where the country should go. And so this is going to become a major headache for Washington, too, over the course of his term. So did parties begin that early then? They did. The, the first political parties began during Washington's term, and it was not something Washington wanted. It was not something the founding fathers wanted. They viewed political parties as a bug, not as a feature. And so both of these early parties, they're like trying to destroy each other because they think, even they realize there shouldn't be parties. Those other guys are ruining this by forming a party. You know, like we should just all be Republicans. We should all be Federalists. Those were the names of the two early parties. And it, it also, the presence of parties, it quickly throws that precious balance of power that the founding fathers had created out of whack. When the founding fathers created the, the government and they were saying, all right, we'll create a Congress, we'll create a presidency, there will be a judiciary, they'll keep each other, you know, checks and balances. The thing we've always heard about American government, checks and balances, Congress will check the president. Nobody imagined there would be political parties. And in fact, when they were voting to adopt the Constitution, another future president, a guy named James Monroe, James Monroe voted against accepting the Constitution because he was like, hold on, guys, what happens if factions emerge and the president and Congress are of the same faction? If Congress is controlled by a faction, that's the same frenzy. The president will have no check on his power anymore. This whole thing breaks. And everybody's like, Psh, dude, that's not going to happen. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> but of course, it where'd has. he get his crystal ball, I know, <laughs> James right? Monroe? Yeah, and so when when these emerge, it, it starts becoming this thing where if the president and Congress are of the same party, those are usually the times when the president really expands his power. You know, when when has the presidency changed? That's when it's changed. And when the president is of an opposite party, or there are a few rare moments in American politics where basically you have a president without a party. Those are the times when it looks most like the founders imagined, where really Congress is running the show and the president is just kind of that project manager in chief that I mentioned earlier. Has the impact of the formation and the you know pretty consistent survival of political parties been on balance a good thing or a bad thing, both for the office of the president, but also for the nation? It's one of those things that's, hard to argue because there's arguments in both directions. I, I think one of the best ways to look at this is through the lens of the 1820s and 30s. So I mentioned James Monroe was this guy who was warning us about parties. When he becomes president, he will succeed in destroying the opposition party. And you will have a brief period of basically one party rule. Some people call it no party rule. They called it the era of good feelings. You know, there was no longer a strong opposition party opposing him. And he, everyone's thinking, okay, this is how it's supposed to work. But at this time, there is this politician out in New York, a guy named Martin Van Buren, who himself will be a future president. And Martin Van Buren, he starts creating a new political party, and he is arguing political parties are good. Here's the reasons he lays out for why we need political parties. He says, we need political parties because without national political parties, the United States will devolve into regional power bases. And if you have regional power bases, it might pull the country apart, you know, kind of unspoken, really nervous about the slavery issue 
that is right there simmering under the surface. And if we let the South and the North become this antagonistic thing. So Martin Van Buren is thinking if we can have national parties, we'll be able to avoid that because national parties can control the debate. You know, they'll just make sure we'll agree. Let's not talk about slavery. Let's talk about other things and keep the nation focused so, so we don't fracture. He also thought parties would combat um, corruption because he said, if, if you have a, a political party, surely the members of that political party would never accept their leaders engaging in corrupt things and they would hold themselves responsible, which I would say that the total opposite has happened. You know, political parties, mm -hmm. if anything, protect their own members nowadays. Oh yeah, uh, at all costs, right? I at mean... all costs, because they don't want the embarrassment to wash back on the party. So they're like, no, nope, we're not gonna investigate that. We're gonna investigate the other party. Well, and it's funny because, you know, not, not to go too far down this digression, but it just seems like often in so doing, they're completely um, counteracting everything they have you know, said their party stands for, <laughs> ideologically <Absolutely>. speaking. <laughs> so yes, really yes. I mean, political party, here's another fun thing about political parties that kind of hits on that. Whatever party is out of power always thinks the government's too powerful, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it is <laughs> and then once they come to power they forget all about that it's like oh yeah let's spend another trillion dollars let's let's do all these really powerful things let's pass all these really big expansive laws the government power and then the other party that had just been doing this is like whoa whoa guys the government's too powerful so that is a totally consistent theme going way even back to the republicans and the federalists uh way back during washington's term so Kenny, what, what would you describe as the president's most pressing responsibilities and, and who do they actually answer to in the end? If you look at those early days, the most, uh, say for George Washington, the most pressing responsibility is how do I set the United States up for success? How do I build a good foundation? You know, we don't want to be an afterthought, like a footnote in history. And, and they're very aware of this, too, because I mentioned, you know, they started with this Articles of Confederation. That government failed in less than a decade. So let's not do that. Other big things, that national debt. We need to pay off the national debt. How are we going to do that? You know, and then, of course, diplomacy with Europe. How do we, uh, say, get fishing rights with the British? How do we get the British to leave those forts? How do we stay out of war? How do we get favorable trade treaties? Those were the most pressing responsibilities because those, those fit in the president's things. You know, the president, he leads on treaties. So he has to make these treaties happen. You know, he, he is in charge of the Treasury Department. So he has to come up with a plan. How do we pay off the national debt? Um, and the time since then, I'd say really the main power in the president's wheelhouse is foreign policy. That's the one area. And Washington was the first person to establish this is foreign policy is his domain. And from there, it, it that's the one place where the president can really act on their own. Domestically, Congress is supposed to lead on all that stuff. Now that's changed over time too, and we can talk about that in a bit. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say those are the most pressing responsibilities, both for Washington and just in general over time. And I actually am really interested in the, in the specific question of yeah. who did they answer to? I mean, you know, there was sort of the, the expectation that they were you know, answering to the nation writ yes. large. But what about within the government? That's a great question. There's very much early on the sense that they answer to Congress. You know, Congress is coming up with the policy. The president is supposed to execute it. Even the things the president leads, like, uh, say, treaties, you know, the president can come up with it. 
but it says in the Constitution, the president must consent and get the advice of the Senate on these treaties. So one early uh, period, it's funny how this evolves. When Washington first becomes president, before he even has a cabinet of advisors, he is trying to negotiate a treaty with some Native American tribes. And he looks at the Constitution where it says advise and consent. And he's like, all right, I guess I should, you know, answer to, Kong, to, to the Senate. I should go to the Senate, get their advice on this. And I think he goes there viewing this as this is going to be a brainstorming session. You know, I'm going to go there. We're going to spitball some ideas. It's going to be great. Then we'll come up with, you know, a policy going forward. And he goes to the Senate and he's, he sends them some questions in advance. And when he gets there, the Senate's like, oh, man, like, we don't really want to discuss this. Let's send this to a committee. And Washington's like, guys, the reason I came here is to just have a discussion with you. If you're going to send this to committee, I'm never coming back. <laughs> and they send it to committee and Washington never goes back. So this is actually a huge oh. moment in shaping that from now on, presidents are just going to kind of do their own thing and then send the treaty to the Senate to sign off yay or nay at the end. That, that was a huge moment where maybe if the Senate had spitballed with Washington that day, that might be how the presidency still works. We might still expect the president to walk over to the Senate and just have informal chats with the Senate about, hey, guys, thinking about a treaty, what do you think about this? And getting their thoughts. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, that and that really is a very just telling anecdote, which, you know, reveals the malleability of this office in the early days and how they really were just kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then the other thing of who they answer to, you know, you mentioned they answer the country. It's worth mentioning, there's no popular vote really back then. Uh, each state legislature picks its electors to the Electoral College however they like. So, you know, quite a few of the states, no popular vote, just the legislature would decide when the election's coming up, okay, we're going to send maybe 10 electors for Washington, four for John Adams, three for Thomas Jefferson, whatever the legislature decides. So the president wasn't quite yet answerable really to the people. It, that, that's why when he does these evening dinners with these politicians in Washington, he knows that that's the peer group he really answers to, uh, especially when he then factor in who can even vote if we do go to popular vote. It's going to be, you know, rich, white landowners. Those are the people who can vote anyway. So that's the class that Washington answers to. What are the credentials needed to do this work? And were they explicitly spelled out early on? Or did all of these, you know, sort of requirements that I think we all know about now in terms of age and birthplace and all of that kind of emerge over time? I actually love this question. There are some very scarce, very scant credentials listed in the Constitution. You must be a natural born citizen who is 35 years old and who spent at least 14 years living in the United States. And that's about it. You know, they <laughs> don't- Random. Yeah, 14. Well, Why 14? So one of their concerns was they didn't want someone who was born here who went to Europe and that then some European power might come back and install them as a monarch. You know, someone who was like born here, never spent another day here. So at 14, how they landed on 14, I don't know, but that's why they have this minimum number of years living here because they were super paranoid of Europe trying to install a king in the American presidency. Um, beyond that though, there are some popular backgrounds of what presidents had done previously. Uh, for example, 31 presidents, had military experience and not always good military experience. I'm not saying these were all generals. 
Uh, one guy, Franklin Pierce, his military experience was he fell off a horse in Mexico City during the Mexican-American War. That's basically his military experience. So he, he needed a desk job. <laughs> he needed a desk job. Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Uh, he had 26 presidents with law experience. 18 had previously been congressmen. 17 previously governors. 16 had been senators. Only five went in with zero public office experience. So you don't need to have served in government at all. You can, you know, our current president, for example, you can enter with zero public office experience. Yeah. And right. five had taught at universities before. So I thought you might like that one. I do like that one. <laughs> Although sometimes it makes it hard for you to speak to other people. So I'm not surprised there's only five. And was this a coveted position? I mean, we we know the famous example of, of how Washington sort of played the coquette, but after that. It was a co coveted position, uh, which is interesting because all the founding fathers, they were very clear, Congress is supposed to be the main show, but nobody retires, you know, from Congress saying, I don't want to be president. If, if you become the president, that's the end. That's the height, you know. Once you become the president, you retire and you go back to your home. Uh, there are only a couple of presidents who really continued in public life after the presidency. Uh, one was Taft, who became a chief, chief justice for nine years. And then one was John Quincy Adams, who actually went back to Congress for nearly 20 years. Uh, and he's a really interesting exception. But I think that shows, you know, when people become the president, they retire afterwards and they stay retired because that is the apex of your political career. And how about compensation? When, when and how much did the president get paid in the early days and how has that changed over time? So when George Washington became president, he was paid $25,000 a year, which looking at an online calculator, how much do you trust the internet? That's about $714,000 a day. And, but 25,000, it didn't change from that for almost a hundred years. So that was still the salary in 1873 when it started to incrementally rise. Um, one other important thing about compensation is there was no pension plan for presidents until 1958. And really? that, yes, you had quite a few presidents who basically died in poverty, having to sell everything. Like uh, Grant was writing a memoir to try to help him get a few bucks to get him through his last years. So that was an early issue for a lot of these presidents that they, you know, might make a bit of money as, as president, but then they retire because, you know, how do you top being president? And then how long am I going to live? What was my retirement plan? So that was definitely uh, an issue for early presidents. Wow. Yeah. In, in the days before the lecture circuit. <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. Now it's right. It's it's you eclipse whatever you would have made as the president, as, as far as I understand, if you believe the headlines you read. And it doesn't help that after you're president, you're still expected to be a gracious host to everyone who's going to show up at your house and ask for dinner. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. What were the risks of being president? So it's a pretty posh job. You know, you live in a mansion, you have servants. The, the biggest risk is probably political violence. You know, four presidents have been assassinated and there have been dozens of attempts. The first attempt of a presidential assassination was on Andrew Jackson in 1835. And Andrew Jackson is one of the craziest of presidents. He, he's got a fiery temper, tough guy. When an assassin pulled a gun on him and the gun misfired, 
Andrew Jackson started beating him with a cane. <laughs> so that's how the first assassination <laughs> is Yes. You idiot, learn to manage your gun. <laughs> right, exactly. I'll show you a thing or two. Um, and there, there was also the, the unexpected, you know, maybe other risk of this job is there is a period in the 19th century when bad sanitation in Washington, D.C. might have killed two or three presidents. Uh, William Henry Harrison, James K. Polk, and Zachary Taylor all died in, I don't know, the span of about 20, 30 years. And, and it might have been the poor sanitation of Washington, D.C. that caused them to get ill and die. Like cholera or something in the water? I... Yeah, like typhoid, you know, things like that. I mean, wow. disease was much more widespread back then. The issue with D.C. in particular is all the sewage drained into a pond near the White House and near the city's <laughs> drinking water. So... Mm. Love that. Not the best system. Not the best system. And what about now? Uh, do, do you see any different additional risks? I mean, there's always the risk to the, the person of the president, obviously, for people who would like somebody else in the office for ideological reasons. But, you know, right now, if you're the president, you have the best doctors in the world taking care of you, as we've seen. You know, you have a presidential suite in Walter Reed if you get sick. Uh, you have security all around you. You have uh, the $400,000 compensation and a pension and the book deals. If you're a president right now, I'd say the main risk is that risk of violence uh, aimed at you. Uh, otherwise, you, you probably are going to leave fairly comfortable. Now, you might also say maybe just the stress of the job. <laughs> there is the emotional, mental yeah. uh, risk. So maybe we can chart that one up too. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and I think like any public figure these days, there's the voracious maw of the media 24-7 yeah. that demands to be fed. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's an occupational hazard for just being alive right now, I think. Certainly. And I will say, you know, you need to have a family that's supportive and understanding because they're probably going to get treated like crap too by that media these days. You oh, know, yeah. someone out there yeah. is going to be picking on yes. your family. So say not a risk to the president themselves, but their family. And I, and I think that's something you have to consider. Who could the president rely on for counsel? That's, you know, an interesting question. And in, in that I mentioned earlier, the president at first tried going to the Senate for advice, you know, and, and that didn't work out too well. After that experience is when George Washington said, I'm going to form a cabinet. The cabinet traditionally is the president's main a group of advisors who they go to for advice. It's not something that was in the Constitution. It's something that George Washington created, probably, you know, because of his experience as a general, where he's used to having these war councils. Oh, right. That makes you know, sense. Yeah, we can get all these guys around him. They can offer very different opinions. And because it's an army, he's used to it being whatever I say goes. So it's okay to have this vigorous <laughs> debate. I'm going to end it. Uh, that didn't necessarily work out too well as a president, because, you know, the guys could continue arguing afterwards. That, that's how we get Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton splitting off and creating parties. But the, the very first cabinet, you only had four members of it. You had a secretary of treasury, Alexander Hamilton, secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, secretary of war, a guy named Henry Knox, and an attorney general, a guy named Edmund Randolph. Since then, it's grown. You now have about 16 cabinet members. And the way this cabinet's used has evolved to Washington. He generally did it through correspondence, a lot of letter writing to them. Oh, okay. So they didn't necessarily meet around a, a round table and <laughs> do Very all that. Really, the first two years, only once a year. Then during a year of crisis, they met much more often. 
but otherwise, you know, if, if things weren't in crisis, it, it would just, you know, mostly be letter writing, maybe once or twice a year, we actually gather them around and say, hey, let's all have, have a chat about something that's on my mind. So hard to even imagine that in the, uh, you know, it happened yesterday culture that we live in now, the idea right. of actually waiting for the post to <laughs> complete right. correspondence for you to make a decision with the advice of one of your trusted um, cabinet members. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's funny, when I think today too, is uh, I remember as a kid once, I was riding around Boy Scouts on a road trip, and I asked one of the dads, like, who does the president go to for advice? And the response this dad gave me, which I think is true, is, Whoever he wants, he's the president. He can pick up the phone and call anybody. They're going to give him an opinion. So nowadays, I'd say that's very much the truth. So Kenny, could you point to any particular um, pivot points or changes that have occurred in the office of the president since it was founded? Absolutely. I'll give you three. Three presidencies who I think mark major changing points in how we look at the presidency and the powers it can command. The first is Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is the first president who's going to step into the office and say, I, the president, am the true representative of the American people. You know, before this, Congress was the main show. Congress was the true representative of the American people. And Jackson is going to challenge that and start acting like a king in ways that no president had before. For example, He's going to start using vetoes in a way no president had before. Jackson will issue more vetoes than the first six presidents combined, which Ooh, gives him tremendous control. Really? Yeah, gives him tremendous control over the legislature. You know, they're the ones supposed to be making the laws. And he is now shaping that by vetoing laws he doesn't agree with. And he's the first president to say, I can veto something because I don't like it. Before him, all vetoes were based on the idea of, there's a reason I think this law is unconstitutional, and that was the argument around it. Wow. So it sounds like he, he has cast his shadow long, maybe right up until yes. the present day, Jackson. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Second would be Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is the first president to show how much power a president can grab in an emergency. You know, during this is the Civil War. And he starts doing things that no president has done before and no president ever would have been allowed to do before because people realize we need to let the president do what it takes to win, do what it takes to survive this emergency. He does things like suspend habeas corpus, the right to appear in court. He begins to jail disloyal northerners. He expands the army and blockades southern ports without congressional approval. And I mean, the size of the army is directly Congress's purview. And he just says, I'm just going to expand it because we need to do this. We don't have time to debate it. Uh, and of course, the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all slaves in rebel states. He just puts it out there. So Lincoln is someone who really shows in times of emergency, the president gets these amazing powers that no one's going to question. And it's almost more just people realize it would be political suicide to try to stop him at that point. So guys like FDR during the Great Depression, World War II, guys like uh, Bush Jr. after 9-11, they will follow in Lincoln's shadow here in assuming tremendous power in times of emergency. Yeah. Well, and I, you'd imagine that it, it's not just worry that, you know, they're not going to have any luck arguing with the, the person of the president in this case. But right. let's be honest, there are genuinely cases, two of which, you know, 
you just mentioned mm -hmm. after the Civil War, in which it probably just seemed pretty clearly in the interest of the nation at large to just move things along rather than getting bogged down in, in procedure. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and the third president that I would offer who really changed the world presidency would be Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is kind of the first legislator in chief in the sense that he got really involved in writing and designing and drafting law and putting pressure on Congress to get it passed. Uh, you go back to the early president, George Washington. George Washington want nothing to do with the passing of law because he, he knew that early Americans would view that as tyrannical. No, Congress makes laws oh. and executes it. So over a hundred years later, Woodrow Wilson becomes the first guy to step in and really say on a very constant basis, I want to be helping write laws. I want to be campaigning for them. Something that is so normal today. So normal. You, you see the, the, the current president, you saw Barack Obama, you know, helping design laws and arguing very forcefully in their favor. Uh, and that's something that started with Woodrow Wilson. So I'd say those are the three guys that major inflection points in presidential power and the way we view the presidency. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And uh, what what's really amazing to me, though, is as, as you, you talk about these historical precedents, how um, just anybody who's paid even a passing attention to modern politics can see how those threads have been picked up and held up as a, a precedent, really, right, to justify what they're doing. These are things that nowadays, that's part of the presidency. And we just kind of assume that was always part of the presidency, but it, it wasn't. These are things that the founding fathers would probably be shocked to learn, wait, the president does that? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. And well, what do you think about that? About that expanding power? You know. Yeah. I mean, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it situational? I mean, this is literally an opinion question. Absolutely. I'd say <laughs> so. it's, it's situational. You know, the idea of the president as a representative of the people, that makes sense as we have slowly worked more towards a uh, presidency where everybody votes. You know, when the first president was elected, it was just the, the elite, the legislators deciding. Nowadays, we have this popular vote. Everyone's enfranchised. Minorities can vote. Women can vote. You know, this really has helped make the president be representative of the people. If we can ever get to the point of a true popular vote, that will cement it. So I'd say that's just kind of fate accompli. You know, that's just a fact. Then you look at uh, in times of emergency presidential power. I'd agree that that's one of those things that you need. You know, at a times of emergency, you. <laughs> I, I think of like Star Wars when Han Solo is talking to Princess Leia, and he's like, "There's no time to debate this in committee." <laughs> but that's the, right. Yeah, you know, there, you get to a point in emergencies where you need someone to just lead and take charge and move quickly and move at a speed that you just can't get when you're letting Congress call the shots. Uh, and then that third part, legislator in chief, it's almost a question of how did it take this long? You know, there's nothing naturally uh, bad about that. But uh, it, it's certainly good for a president to have policies he believes and supports. And I'd say of all those things, the one thing that maybe not the best is the veto. The way that uh, Andrew Jackson started to abuse the veto to just veto anything he disagreed with, that was never, I don't think, supposed to be how the veto worked. 
And you can still see today, you know, Congress can pass a law that they all support, the president can veto it. And, and there have been some laws that probably would have had like really good impacts on the country. And that obviously, you know, if, if Congress and the Senate support it, that would suggest a good part of the country supports it. But the president disagrees, he vetoes it just for whatever reason. And that's probably blocked progress in certain areas of the United States. And, you know, this line of conversation just has me thinking, you know, we've been talking so far about being president and doing that job, but could we talk a little bit about the job of running for president, which is, you know, a newer job, it seems, right? When there is at least lip service to the concept of a popular vote, right? And the need to win over the people. I would say the job of running for president has changed more than the job of being president. Um, you start with George Washington. There was no running for president. He was you know, trying to be like the noble Romans of old, waiting for people to summon him to the presidency. And the next couple of presidents tried to kind of look that way, but they did campaign through, say, letter writing campaigns. You know, they would write to their newspaper supporters. They might plant articles. It would be very covert, subvert, you know, nothing open. Openly, they're just sitting there at their house waiting for, you know, the Electoral College to summon them as president. But under the water, they're doing all these acts and campaigning for themselves through letters and also maybe dinner parties. For early presidents, like the first hundred years or so, the first lady is actually hugely important in this because she's responsible for that social life, organizing these, you know, Washington balls and galas. And that's kind of the presidential campaign especially back then when these legislators are the people who are probably picking who the president is. Uh, Or when you go to a party convention system for a while where just the the party brass will meet in a city and decide who's our next president going to be. Having a first lady who can organize your social life so you can really rub uh, some elbows with these folks, this is so important to helping your uh, presidential aspirations. The first person to go out and campaign for themselves is William Henry Harrison in 1840. And he doesn't even initially start out doing this. Uh, He starts off his campaign staying at home like everyone else always had, but he starts getting this flack. He's being accused of he's just going to be a stooge for the leaders of his party. He has no thoughts of his own. And he says, I'm going to show you. And he starts going out and campaigning for himself and he wins. And from there to FDR, it's, there's this like, what's the best way? Should we go out and campaign? Should we just like stay at home and write letters and maybe answer questions of anyone who shows up? It, it, it isn't until the 20th century that you get to the modern way of politicking where presidents are out there campaigning. They are giving rallies. They are, you know, you get to say, uh, Harry Truman's the first guy to go on TV with TV commercials. FDR, of course, used radio really effectively. Uh, and then Kennedy Nixon, the first presidential debate. Those are some of the milestones and how we went from presidents aren't supposed to seek the office. That was almost viewed as corrupt. <laughs> you know, a man who wants to seek the office that we can't trust. He doesn't that. deserve it. He has ulterior motives. And over 240 years, it's totally accepted. We expect the president to go pitch us on why they should be president. We do. And, you know, I'm okay with that personally, just as a, as, you know, a a voting member of the American public. But I wonder what you think about the turn to just 
the really dirty politics that seems to underpin all campaigning now. Like, what has happened to the positive messaging? If you go back to, uh, say, John Adams against Thomas Jefferson, who's going to replace George Washington? So, you know, the first time that there's really this question, Washington has announced he's going to resign. Okay, he can't be president. Who will be president? You have John Adams running against Thomas Jefferson, and their political presses, their partisan newspapers, are so trashing the others. You know, John Adams is saying if Thomas Jefferson's elected, the streets will run red with blood. He's going to bring the French Revolution here, you know, like it's going to be terrible. And Thomas Jefferson's saying if you elect John Adams, he's going to make himself a king and you'll have all your liberties taken away. It was really nasty from the get-go. Uh, you even look at, listen to, say, some of the early songs, some of the early uh, political songs these campaigns would run, they often will like deride their op opponent. I mentioned William Henry Harrison. He has a fantastic campaign song. I advise everybody looking up and listen to it. It's very catchy. Uh, part of the chorus is he's running against a guy named Martin Van Buren, and part of his chorus is Van, Van, Van's a used up man. <laughs> <laughs> walking around singing and van buren he's running he's singing something about like you know harrison and tyler they're just a trick but van buren's a magician you want the real thing like they're directly attacking each other in songs before walking around singing and that gets in your head right it's it sort of like it an advertising jingle that's brilliant um well i suppose yeah those newspaper um letters the published letters the articles Early Americans loved their newspapers. It was common to read multiple newspapers a day. And the newspapers were all partisan back then. You, you, the independent, like, you know, neutral press that we idolize, that doesn't emerge for like 100 years. So people, uh, like we get today, where we, you know, fret about people retreating into information bubbles of like, say you're only listening to conservative viewpoints that reinforce your views. You're only listening to the liberal viewpoints that reinforce your views. That's how things started. And how do you think the role of the president compares to other contemporary world leadership roles? And, and you know, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about that um, in historic sense and, and also in evolutionary sense, oh, you know, over time, how that, that changed. You know, when the president was first created, it was so unique because everybody else was a monarchy. You know, and so it was very weird, you know, uh, kind of like that Citizen Genet story of, of people would come here and they wouldn't quite understand how do I interact with the president? How can I say try to manipulate him or pressure him? It, it was very unique until other countries started putting forth prime ministers and becoming more democratic over time. When you look in kind of the modern context, you know, certainly the president is not a dictator. You know, they are not elected by pure popular vote. They are not elected by a parliamentary system. We have set term limits. You know, you can't have like a snap election that might reshape a government. I think the biggest difference of the president is, um, you know, a long time ago, they were very weak. The early American presidents, quite weak. Now they have overwhelming positions of national strength and political power. Compared to any other world leader, nobody is going to sit in a power of such national, sit in a position of such national power as the president does. Yeah. And, you know, this moniker, leader of the free world, <laughs> you right. know, it's just really, frankly, very arrogant. I mean, that's my anthropological hat on I for just a sec. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when did you, we earn that title anyway? <laughs> we gave it to ourselves. We gave it yeah. to ourselves. We didn't, we didn't earn that. We took it. 
Um, but but it, it raises a really important question, I think. I mean, do you think the role of the president has grown too powerful? I mean, not just within our own government, but in the world at large. Uh, I would say absolutely. You know, we live in a time of imperial presidency. They have so much power to enact things through executive orders, especially say if Congress is of their party, they have such authority to do whatever they want and not fear investigation. Even if it's not controlled by their party, they know they can probably kind of get away with whatever they want and they're not gonna be impeached or anything. Their only real concern is the next election. And as we're seeing right now, some presidents feel that they can put a thumb on that too. The, the presidency really has become uh, something that the founding fathers would view as as terrifyingly powerful. Yeah, I'd have to say that I, I'm with the founding fathers on that one. Um, you know, this is its own can of worms, but the election cycles being quite short, mm -hmm. you know, the president is basically campaigning from the time he's been elected the first time for re-election, right? I mean, how does that impact things in your mind? Now, I think that's something, no matter what your you know, election cycles are, the president's always running for the next term until they're in their last term, you know, and then maybe they're running for their party. Um, but some presidents have been more overt about it than others. You know, some are making it very clear, I'm doing this for votes, I'm doing that for votes. Uh, others will maybe try to appeal to the, like, I'm, I'm trying to do what's best for the country, even though it may be unpopular. And every now and then we will have a president who, who just says, listen, what I'm trying to make happen, I know this is going to be really unpopular, but it's best for the country. Go to those early presidents. There was a time where we were, we were creating national banks. And this, is, it sounds so boring. The national bank was the biggest, most controversial thing for like the first 50 years of American government. You know, do we create one or not? If you create one, the bank can extend loans, you know, that allow the country to develop more quickly. But the people who didn't like the bank, same as people who don't like banks today, for the reasons they don't like banks today, banks can create economic bubbles that lead to economic crashes and recessions. The presidents who created national banks are presidents who did things that they knew would be incredibly unpopular, generally, nationally. The party supported it, but they knew that most of the nation didn't. But they also knew it was important for national growth. And the national banks generally did their things in early American history to help the country grow. So every now and then, you know, you will see a president who says, I'm going to do something that's best for the country, even though it might be unpopular or I know it will be unpopular just because the information I have in front of me tells me this is the right thing to do. Um, another great example of that would be George Washington proclaiming neutrality during the war between Britain and France. The overwhelming number of Americans wanted to support France in that war because France had helped us win our war and France was, uh, you know, in the midst of becoming a republic or so it appeared during the revolution. So they wanted to get France's back. But George Washington, he's kind of sitting there. He's like, guys, our army is like a thousand people. What are we <laughs> supposed to do? This is a terrible idea. We're staying neutral. And he got a lot of flack for that. Let's look at the flip side of that question, if you don't mind. Um, you've just mentioned some, you know, commanders in chief who took the high road and were very strong in the office. Are there any presidents that come to mind who were in particular puppets, you know, either of their political parties or, you know, in the more modern day, uh, large corporations or other <laughs> lobbies? 
That's that's a good, interesting question. You know, when I think of the presidents who were who were weak, um, one certainly who comes to mind is John Quincy Adams. And it's it's not in say the direction you were going. He wasn't a puppet of anybody. The reason he was weak is because he had no party. John Quincy Adams got elected uh, saying, I'm not gonna have a party, I'm gonna do my own thing. And he quickly found that if you're a president without a party, you cannot get anything done. He accomplished <laughs> nothing in four years as a president. And it's, it's just amazing how little happened because he just had nobody's backing. So that's an example of a really uh, unsuccessful, you know, like a uh, puppet president that you might say. I, I do think that the power dynamics is in such a way that very rarely would you say a president is just solely a puppet to um, a special interest or lobbyist or their party. They might make political decisions to do things that support a lobby or a party, but that doesn't mean that that lobby or party own them. You know, they're just realizing, hey, I'm going to scratch your back, you'll scratch my back, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to defer to you explicitly. Which presidents? have had the worst corruption records. So when you ask about worst corruption records, I kind of feel like there's two ways to look at this. There's corrupt administrations or corrupt presidents. Uh, for example, President Grant, he had a notoriously corrupt administration, even though he himself was pretty clean. Whereas you get guys like Richard Nixon, who was very, very corrupt, bending the power of the government to his own reelection. Um, but I, I don't think anybody has really come close to the level of corruption we've seen from the current president, Donald Trump. I was afraid you'd say that. No, yeah. not afraid. I knew you would say that. <laughs> I guess I served that softball up for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I sort of was thinking, well, if you could come up with some historical figures that were in any way comparable. <laughs> I, I mean, I think in some contexts, one might... Um, kind of think about, all right, well, what's our yardstick here for, for measuring presidential corruptness or, or just poor performance? And that's a great point, though. The, the, you know, we think of corruption as this modern definition, this moral value that's been unchanged. And sure, the moral value that we look at today, corruption always exists in that sense. But 200 years ago, corruption was more than just you know, self-dealing or things like that. Um, when Andrew Jackson ran for president in the 1820s, he viewed corruption as anybody lusting for political power, which is kind of ironic because he's like, those guys are lusting political power, so I'm going to become president to stop them. You know, like it's, it's kind of counter. Well, and, then, and then from what you said, proclaiming himself, yes. uh, you know, to have greater powers right. than the, the office generally did. How ironic. <laughs> the presidency is a great field for people who have irony. <laughs> So is there a president from the past that you would consider to be particularly, you know, dangerous, uh, just either in terms of how they exercise the power of their office or just their, you know, their, their policies in terms of danger to the nation? I think you have to say the most dangerous president was probably uh, Buchanan given as the country immediately fell into civil war after his presidency. So that's a pretty like clear barometer of this. Yeah, that's pretty damning. <laughs> yeah, this person was clearly dangerous to the country. And he, he, the interesting thing is a lot of people think of Buchanan. They're like, he was a very inactive president. That's why he fell to civil war. He was actually very active. And, and he exacerbated the tensions with his activity. Uh, for example, before he's even quite sworn in, he influences the Supreme Court. 
to pass this monumental decision, the Dred Scott case, that basically says black people can't be free in the North, you know, like slaves cannot be freed. It, it, it's a huge decision. I, that's not the right summary of it. You know, I, I recommend anyone who wants to learn more about it, Google it, look it up. But he, this, this huge case that's very influential. He also leans in at this time, the territory of Kansas is trying to become a state. And there's a totally corrupt government elected there where basically slave owners from Missouri are crossing the border into Kansas and forcing Kansas to elect pro-slavery leaders at gunpoint. And so that you have two governments there. You have the, this kind of corruptly elected, but uh, disrespected, like everybody knows it's corruptly elected, pro-slavery government. And then you have the shadow government of you know, not pro-slavery people and Buchanan leans very heavily in favor of the pro-slavery government and tries to make it stick. So by doing these things, he divides the country uh, to the point where when, when that his term is over and Abraham Lincoln is elected, the South secedes and we get a civil war. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous. I mean, and I, I think there are many who would argue that we could be looking at a pretty similar situation in our country at the moment as we're entering election season. <laughs> There's a lot of, of really contentious subjects out There's there. There's a lot of really contentious things. You do see, sadly, acts of uh, political violence, you know, happening right now. I, I, don't, I wouldn't be in the camp of people who's afraid of, say, a civil war or anything like that. I know that's something I hear some of my friends mention or people ask me, like, Kenny, do you, do you think we're at risk of that? And the reason I would say no is, is in part back then it was a regional issue that was splitting the country. So you could draw a line and, you know, this side of the line believes in this, that side of the line believes in that. Today, it's more of a rural urban divide. You know, the cities tend to be more liberal and democratic. The rural areas tend to be more conservative. You're not, you're going to have a tough time splitting that up into a civil war of any sort. Oh yeah. Well, with geographical lines, absolutely. Yes. Unless you yes. sort of, well, if you, from what I, see on on television when i do watch it um you know we've got coasts and we've got an interior and that's a gross simplification but right. there are some general lines one can draw party wise there mm. but i i don't know i wonder if in this day and age it's not actually just as damaging to the nation's psyche and unity to see civil war waged in you know just universally visible media channels and the ways in which news travels everywhere. News is, you know, <laughs> accused of being fake or not. And yeah, I think there's a great deal of fear and confusion. And I also think there are really um, good substitutes for a geographical ground war that exist due to our, you know, unprecedented real-time connection. In the modern I would world. think the greatest fear right now in terms of civil disturbance is political violence and domestic terrorism. You just saw on the news recently a uh, group of, I believe they were white supremacists, were planning to kidnap, put on trial, and execute the Michigan governor before the November 3rd election, before the FBI busted them up. So How nice of them to actually purport to have some sort of a trial. Was this going to be a, another Salem witch trial? Sorry, we just went live <laughs> with a Salem witch trial episode. So that's on my mind, but it popped right up. You know, it, it probably would have been about as effective of if she weighs the same as a duck, then let's burn her. She's a witch or let's throw her into a pond and see if she drowns. Probably would have gone and then, about and that. And then 
then she's innocent once she's drowned yes. already. You drowned. Yes. Oh, shoot. She was innocent. Oh, well. Oh, next time. <laughs> Better safe than sorry, guys, right? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm making light of things that I, I, I think are very serious, but, um, yes. you know, we, we are in, in, in rather frightening times right now. We have to hope that um, our our political system will prove as robust as it has to last as long as it has to to go through this election intact. You have to hope leaders emerge who encourage treating the opposition like human beings <laughs> and yes. respect and courtesy. And that's not something... Kindergarten values. Yes, yes. we all need values. to go back to kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Do you think we'll always have a president as a major staple part of the U.S. government structure? I feel like if there's one lesson of history, it's that nothing lasts forever. But if we ever stop having a president, I think the reason we stop having a president will be because a dictator replaced them. But they would probably still call themselves president. It would be something like Putin in Russia, you know, like, yeah, I'm the president. But Forever. I do want, and I kill you, you know, like, as long as there's the United States, I think there will be an office that calls itself the presidency. But it, the biggest risk is that it could, in practice, become a dictator. Yeah, so the title's the same, but the, the job itself is really nothing like what was envisioned. Americans are really good at marketing. It's our superpower. <laughs> Well, how do you see the future of the presidency? And I, I can't help but wrap into that uh, question about, you know, whether you think that the consequences of some of our current president's conduct will impact that. Yeah, when I look at the future of the presidency, I think that, you know, all of president, all, all of history really is kind of a gradual concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few at the top, offset by occasional rapid and reactionary shifts the other direction. So the, the future of the presidency will probably be a continued accrual of power un, until it hits a point where there's a rapid reactive response to that, you know, led from the ground up that causes the presidency to lose some of those power. And, and then what that looks like, how that plays out, that's the, the who knows. Um, but I do think the United States is rapidly approaching a point where the Constitution, as we drew it up, it's not working the way it was supposed to anymore. For example, you look at judicial appointments and how that happens. You know, the way the Senate, and this is the Senate gets involved here too, the way they can just block uh, a judiciary from being filled, leaving vast numbers of openings for the or punch period. it through. <laughs> yeah, or punch it through. It's it, you. There's no real requirements in terms of how eligible are these people? Like, are these people actually good jurists? You can just force through partisan judges who get lifetime uh, terms on the bench. These aspects of the presidency and how it interacts with the Senate, there, I think we're really hitting a point where constitutional amendments need to be brought in. And that's the reason constitutional amendments are, exist. That's the reason they're possible. And we're hitting a point where they're needed. Otherwise, you're going to hit a breaking point where some other sort of reaction happens. So what I'm kind of wondering, Kenny, is if you have any views on what seems increasingly in the modern era to be, well, let's call it a disconnect between views of the person who is, you know, the president at the time and respect 
and kind of reverence even for the office of the president and, and what it's intended to be. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've certainly seen a disconnect of uh, people. It, it's kind of like if I agree with the president, I'll respect the office. If I don't agree with the president and they're of the other party, I won't respect the office. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the healthiest place to be. And the, the number of people who are willing to respect the office when it's in the other party's hands are, are dwindling. You know, you think of guys like, say, uh, John McCain. Yeah. Oh, some, you know, I literally, I was just thinking of John McCain. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, someone who th they might agree with you, but they're still going to respect the office and that's going away. Um, and, and I think part of that is the hyper partisanship of American politics, that this is what people are being told. People are, you know, they're taught these behaviors. You, you, you look at where this is learned. You, if you observe, if you consume certain medias, those certain medias will tell you this president is trashed, they're bad for the office, they should be disrespected, they're turning it into like an imperial presidency, you know, bad, 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 bad. And you in turn will come to like hate that president and the office. And I, I think how do you say maybe fix this is we got to go back to the way we teach civics growing up. You know, and we really got to impress on people nonpartisan values uh, and values of respect and and the importance of not turning political offices into uh, partisan power plays. I think to um, say like when Bush was president is the first time I, I think I remember hearing about this. If you wanted to attend a George Bush Jr. rally, you had to sign a loyalty oath, you know. And I think a lot of people saw this being like, wait, wait a second. Why are we signing loyalty oaths to an individual? Like that doesn't sound right. That doesn't jive. And you hear the current president asking people to swear fealty to him. Um, so these are some of the ways we've gotten away from it. And how do you get back to it? it? It just goes back to what are you teaching people in civics and the way they interact with government and media. Um, in, in the military, look at the top brass in the army, for example. And they've done, honestly, I'll be honest, to me, a surprisingly good job of staying out of politics, not a perfect job, but of not letting the army totally be used as a political play base for one party or another. You know, they, if you're in the army, you are taught that you fight for the constitution, you, you're loyal to the constitution, you know. Um, and the president might be your commander in chief, but it, it's clear out there you cannot follow an unconstitutional order. So I think these are the things that people need to be uh, taught, that fealty to the constitution, the idea of a, of a united United States. And we need leaders on both sides to teach this. And it, it probably should be taught more thoroughly in, in schools as we're growing up. Well, and, and we need leaders to model that behavior on both yes, sides, don't exactly, we? Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And listening to you talk about that, it, it kind of brings me right back to the very beginning of our conversation when you were talking about how the role of the president was originally conceived as a project manager of sorts. I mean, what do you think the prospect is for us, you know, getting back there from where we are now? I would say the prospects of getting back to that is not good. The, the presidency, I feel like you could almost look at it as a very old shirt. And every time a new president wears a shirt, they stretch it out in new ways. And so it's constantly, you know, kind of growing. And if, if you, you might put someone in there who's willing to like dial back the office, 
but the shirt doesn't shrink with them. It's still there for the next person to step into and start you and fill it up fully again and use all those powers that have been created. The only way we would say snap back to that is if you literally say wrote some new amendments um, and directly put it into law of here's some new restrictions on presidential power. Kenny, would you make a good president? <laughs> I like to think that I would because I think the presidency just kind of reflects what the person wants. You know, I'm someone who likes helping other people. That's what I would try to do. Now, I might end up like Jimmy Carter, a well-intentioned you know, person who totally fails and everybody hates for some reason. But, I, you know, all you can do is try. So I would hope so. Kenny, thank you so much. I have learned more than I ever learned in civics in high school. I'm going to tell you that for sure about how our government works. And I propose that you um, you become sort of the uh, unofficial civics educator for the nation. I appreciate that, Karen. I've had a lovely time talking with you. It's been a lot of fun. The good old US of A had a tumultuous, fiery birth, all right. The nation has clearly come a long way from uncertain beginnings to its iconic position of global power and influence today. The same can be said of its leadership, specifically that of the president, a role that has evolved so far from its original form, well, which, to be fair, was ambiguous from the start. Gone are the days of serving a term and quietly returning to private life, as George Washington did. Today's president wields immense and sometimes frightening power. And it doesn't help that following modern political machinations can be confusing, disheartening, and myriad other ings. But despite it all, there is one key factor that hasn't changed when it comes to the presidency. The power of the people to check their elected leader. Yes, U.S. citizens still have a say in who runs the country for everyone's benefit. By staying informed, by exercising the right to vote. As the presidency and the world at large continue to evolve in ways we couldn't have imagined, the power of the people to shape their society must remain sacrosanct. Thanks, as always, for listening. And now, go vote! How did Andrew Jackson win that famous battle at New Orleans? How did Abraham Lincoln go from tall loser to tall president? And what did John Tyler do to get himself burned in effigy by his own party? Hi there, my name is Kenny Ryan, and I'm the host of Abridged Presidential Histories. Join me as I tell the stories of the triumphs, setbacks, and scandals of America's presidents in chronological order, each in 60 minutes or less. Tune in at aph.buzzsprout.com. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a wonderful evening of theater and picking up after yourselves. <coughs> we begin with a tribute to our lesser-known presidents. We are the mediocre presidents. You won't find our faces on dollars or on cents. There's Taylor, there's Tyler, there's Fillmore, and there's Hayes. There's William Henry Harrison. I died in 30 days. We are the adequate, forgettable, occasionally regrettable, caretaker presidents of the U. Uh-huh.
Hello, Working Overtime listeners. You can follow today's guest, Kenny Ryan, on Twitter at KennyRyan27. Be sure to check out his awesome podcast, Abridged Presidential Histories, at APH Podcast on Twitter, or you can just visit aph.buzzsprout.com. As always, we're on social media with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Finally, get out there and vote. Use your voice. It really does matter. Thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.